do I focus on happiness and try to just experience the moment or do I focus on meaning and try to like build things that span across time? The trick isn't to like find the perfect middle point or to like realize which polarity is the right polarity. It's to be able to like dynamically move between the different extremes. Basically like to, to become like a big enough person where you're able to exist at like every point on the spectrum. Welcome, beautiful thinkers. And that's a clip from this interview with my friend, one of the hosts of the Multiversity Project podcast, Ariel Friedman. And today we're going to be talking about Ariel's journey through order and chaos, exploring different political ideologies and philosophies to try to find some kind of balance in her life or golden mean, as Aristotle put it. So we'll get into that in a moment. Now, as you're listening to this episode, I just ask that you think, maybe keep it in the back of your mind, wondering who might this benefit? And maybe there's one close friend that you can send this episode to if you think it might open their mind a little bit or provide them some benefit or give them a different perspective on life. So just ask that little favor. Thanks so much. And let's begin. This is a beautiful thought. I'm here with my friend, co-host of the Multiversity Project, Ariel Friedman. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I wasn't so good when we tried to record this earlier. And since then, I went on a hike and like climbed up this, this small mountain and came back. I know like, the theme that we're going to talk about today is overcoming challenges, and it, it got me thinking a bit about that. Okay, that's, a, that's cool. Well, that's a good way to clear your head. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I realized that a lot of the time when I have like a challenge that feels, uh, that feels intimidating, like for some reason this conversation felt intimidating, maybe because it's a bit more personalistic than what I usually do uh, on podcasts. Yeah. I realize like often the way I, I deal with it is I just like set some really difficult task for myself and I do it. And after that, I feel like somehow uh, things just seem more doable or it feels like there's some kind of movement in some direction. Yeah, that makes sense. I noticed when you were t talking, when we were talking earlier, you said, uh, I think I need to stand up or m get my body moving for a second. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. I think part of it's also like psychological. Like, uh, I know we're going to talk about different challenges or different is ideological challenges that I've encountered in my life. And I realized that like, often the way that I process those or deal with those is uh, I do it in the context of like moving, you know, like moving somewhere very far away. Okay, as in moving, moving how? Yeah, or like moving to a different province in Canada. Those are like states, like a different state or moving to a different country sometimes. Okay, yeah, it's, I, I think that has a, a lot to do with identity because it's like you, you cleave off the old self or something like that. Or this kind of a, it's, I guess it's a bit of a stereotype, but people say, when women uh, finish long relationships, they normally cut their hair because it's like you see yourself differently and you want that to be reflected in your appearance and that kind of thing. Yeah, that totally is a stereotype. There's another one like, uh, you know, when a, move, when a woman moves to a new city, stereotypical thought is like, you know, mm -hmm. there's the ex-boyfriend the ex was in the old city and that's why she's here now. Break yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
It's one way to try to forge a new identity or, or find out what's going on with yourself. Look at yourself in a new context. It's, it's a great metaphor because some of these like ideological dramas I've gone through are very... I kind of think of them like relationships and breakups and falling in love and falling out of love. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of parallels. Yeah. So you, you want to tell a story or may, maybe you'd like to tell a story about your identity, like about going through different stages of your life and what you've realized at, at each point and the, yeah, the challenges you overcame. So where, where do you think we should begin? Like uh, Ariel version one? Yeah, yeah. I guess like part of uh, your prompt that you kind of gave me to uh, for this interview was at one point, a while ago, I was talking to you and I was sort of telling you, like, I view there as being multiple versions of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we all start off with, like, kind of version zero of ourselves, right? Like, the version of ourselves that we never, that we, we grow up into. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're still in that version, you know, you, you, the belief that when you share the beliefs that you were raised with and that your parents have and that your community has, there's, like, a certain stage of development there. And there's nothing really wrong with that stage. Like, some people stay at that stage forever. But I think it, you go through a real transformation when, when you start to question that. Yeah. So um, what kind of beliefs did you have at that, at that stage in your life? Well, I was, I, was, I was pretty liberal, like politically. And I don't think I had much of a philosophy. Like I was atheist. I was raised to be atheist and I was pretty materialist. Like I read the Bible mostly to make fun of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry. When you say liberal, you mean like left liberal, not like a classical liberal or... In, in Australia, liberal actually means right-wing. No, I mean, like, classical. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely confusing. There's a lot of confusion around that term. All right, like, socially socially leftist and uh, politically or uh-huh. economically classically liberal, politically classically liberal. It was, very, it was, now it's like, that's almost, like, edgy to be that way. But, like, in the 90s, it was, like, really common. It was kind All of right. just the default. Yeah, no, I don't know. I was, I was patriotic. I believed in nationalism and stuff like that. Uh yeah. I mean, I think part of like the challenge for me was like uh, my parents were my parents got divorced. They came from a broken home. There was a lot of conflict in my family. I got into I coped with that conflict by becoming very conflictual. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if there's going to be a fight, I'm not going to I'm always going to fight back. I'm at least not going to lose the fight. Okay. Kind of thing. And so I think that, you know, imprinted itself upon my personality. And uh, that was one way I sort of, I don't know, overcome, but coped with with the challenges. And I think that really shaped, like, my political and philosophical, like, predispositions. Like, I was a radical leftist for a while. And it's, like, a very similar structure. The you, Like, the, the world is a war. Reality is a war. The universe is a war. Mm-hmm. A series of small wars. You just fight for what you think is right and try not to lose. And you never, you never, you never, you never lie down. You never stop fighting. Okay. So was it like you were seeking conflict, or it's just conflict seemed to find you, or it was just the whole, the whole mentality around it? Well, conflict's everywhere if you want to look for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah, like get into anecdote. Like one time uh, in BC, I was at like a campfire and I did mushrooms. And I was just like looking into the fire and I just like had this like vision and started like talking to everybody, like telling everyone like, you know, like it's all a war. Like, mm. like the war is everywhere. Like, like our country is a war. Our world is a war. Like there's the war here. There's the war there. Like there's the war between like, you know, you can find all the parties that are at war. Like there's the, 
you know, the the Turks and the Kurds. You can lay like there was a war we're having in Afghanistan. There's a war in like uh, between like the city developers and like the neighborhoods they're gentrifying. There's the war between. I was so like more. I was so much more dialed in back then, so it would have been more eloquent. Like, the war between indigenous communities and resource extraction projects. They're trying to build stuff on their territories. The war between men and women. The war between straight people and gay people. Mm-hmm. The war between different ethnic groups between different political I, I just i was just going off about how there's the war the war is everywhere mm. and we always have to be fighting yeah i know that's something that people who study political science sometimes they have that view like they say politics is is in everything and politics is like this power struggle and it's just everywhere you look you you can find it if you have that lens yeah totally and i mean even and there's different ways to view politics like someone who is more you know, maybe maybe if I if things had remained more peaceful as they were in my childhood, and I maybe, maybe I would have stuck with a liberalism, which is more like politics is everywhere and it's all a conversation. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a different way of looking at it. Yeah. So that was that like uh, the, like stage zero was like the the beliefs that your parents gave you that li- ri- liberalism and patriotism and and these things, and then stage one is like this you were more conflict driven. Yeah, that that dichotomy just there. Maybe stage stage zero was like REL zero was like pol- politics are politics are everywhere. Well, not quite. I still had a sense of like war, but I would have seen more the default being a conversation. Hmm. Whereas I became like kind of consumed by the idea of conflict. In my personal life too, I got into a lot of conflict. It's not the worst way to live. Like it's a it's something to be said for it as a coping strategy. So how did it help you cope? It's it's very active. It's a very active way to live. Ah. to get involved in conflicts and dramas and i was very competent so i was often doing things like activism or like organizing events and organizing things with people so i was i was constructive like i was doing a lot of things and so i became good at doing things because i was doing things and giving speeches and you know i meet other people who are like similarly disposed towards conflict and then there's like a deep sense of like companionship mm-hmm. is when 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 you bond with someone and in, in in a context of conflict and drama you really it feels like a much deeper connection than when you know you're just having a conversation with someone it sounds like maybe the, your motivation at that time was partly about control like you wanted to expand your uh, the influence that you had in the world and also about the companionship yeah i definitely yeah i think so i i think when i when i was a kid probably there was things that were happening around me that felt like really wrong hmm I was trying fighting to like change them and I couldn't. And so when I like grew up and it's looking at the world and it seemed like there was all these things that were wrong, I just sort of fell into the same pattern of mm. I guess trying to change things and most of the time I couldn't. But it was like an attitude like I'm at least gonna fight for it, even if it's gonna fail. Yeah. Okay. So like some some things are worth putting your all into, even though you don't know what the result will be. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's worth doing it because it's the right thing. So did did you eventually get over that conflict state of mind or what happened with it i don't know if i ever got over it i think it just transformed probably <laughs> yeah 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 after a while i start to see some problems with the politics like i was uh i was reading a lot about uh lenin yeah so lenin had this whole thing where he was like he, t- he was a true believer like he totally believed in the revolution and what he was doing like stalin wasn't stalin was like a power hungry like basically hmm hedonistic kind of asshole but lenin was like he really believed in it he really believed in 
Marxism. Mm-hmm. He really believed in his version. He really believed that, you know, the proletariat, he had a love of nature. He would go out in nature and like the bird would land on his finger. Like he had, he had, one could say he had a good heart, but his morality was like completely oriented towards the revolution. Like they said about Lenin, like he, he would, he would look at an action and judge it to be right or wrong, depending on whether it furthered the revolution or not. Okay. And that to me, I, I'd say that sounds like a fanatic. Yeah, Lenin was definitely a fanatic, but I was probably a fanatic too. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, I thought that way. So so I looked at Lenin, and you know, despite Lenin's good intentions, everything just went so wrong. And that was in part because he thought he had all the answers, and because he was following this ideology that's ultimately, I was realizing more and more, very similar to my own political beliefs. Hmm. And I also looked at Iran. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well. It makes me wonder if if you had some awareness or realization, if you think, well, it didn't work out so well for Lenin, so may, maybe that's not right, or or maybe you, you think it wasn't done right or whatever and doubled down on it. Yeah, it's interesting because there's kind of two ways you can go. Like a lot of leftists like will look at Lenin and be like, sure, Lenin screwed up, but it's because he did X, Y, Z. That's not real communism. And I wasn't a communist, I was an anarchist, so it would have been even easier for me to be like, well, Lenin's mistake was that he was, you know, he was a tanky communist. He should have just been an anarchist like me. But as I thought through it, and I was looking at all these different examples, like after I looked at Lenin, I looked at uh, the revolution in Iran, and in the revolution in Iran, it's a different situation. A lot of ways... Their politics in the 70s, like Iranian leftists, very much paralleled the poli- like what we were saying. Like they were talking about imperialism and their politics. Like all their points were valid. Like the Shah was a puppet of the West, mm-hmm. and and they 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 basically they, they overthrew the Shah, and then the radical right took power and installed a brutal theocracy. And it seemed to me that if anarchists took down the government, you'd see something very similar to that. Because if we're not going to install a government in its place, then how are we going to prevent others from taking over that power vacuum? Yeah. So it's like maybe the idea that that this was utopian or idealistic or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was it wasn't going to work. Like I sort of like I, I sort of alluded before to this belief system that uh, we do it whether it's going to work or not because it's the right thing to do. I started to think about it and I started to think like, well, if it's really not going to work and it could potentially create this like hell on earth, then maybe it's not the right thing to do. Yeah, well, that sounds reasonable. So uh, what what did you think that you should do after that? Well, I really struggled after that. Uh, yeah, I became very drawn to Jordan Peterson's philosophy. Mm-hmm. which oddly enough also has kind of a, a theme of conflict at its center. Like I, I read, like if you read the book, like maps of meaning, which is kind of like the textbook for his philosophy, he believes the universe is polarized between the divine masculine and the divine feminine. So the divine masculine represents like the forces of order and the divine feminine represents the forces of like chaos. Like the divine masculine is like order, civilization, leadership, hierarchy, and the divine feminine is chaos, nature, emotion. It would it would have been considered very sexist under my old politics. Okay. And is it sexist? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it depends. <laughs> if it's true, it can't be. Okay. But if masculine and feminine are 
social constructs than perhaps. Yeah. But it, it's like, uh, yeah, I guess with this view of, of masculine and feminine order and chaos, you can also look at that as a, not necessarily as a conflict, but as a conversation. Yeah, you, you could. You could. But what Jordan Peterson says, like he's there's like the the great mother and the great father, and then there's the hero in the center who like travels between them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess he doesn't really necessarily frame it as as a conflict, just more of a tension. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to, as individuals, to kind of navigate that tension. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like a like a much more liberating point of view. I think it is in a lot of ways. It can also be very constraining. Mm-hmm. It's like your responsibilities don't just come from society anymore. Like they come from the universe, mm-hmm. which is a huge burden to bear. Yeah. So you accepted that idea that you have uh, some kind of universal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, that that, that does sound like a big responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It- you still uh, believe in a lot of these ideas from Jordan Peterson? Yeah, I still believe in a lot of the ideas from all of it. it yeah, I mean, I, it just—I see it differently now. Like, I see it almost—it's like I just see—I see all the structures, so I'm not quite living in them in the same way. As it, yeah, you know, it's like the difference between being inside your house and seeing your house from an airplane. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's like every stage of the path, every step. You managed to integrate a lot of what you learned from the previous steps and, and you're like building this bigger and bigger structure to understand the world or understand yourself. Yeah, that's that's the idea anyway. There's definitely like stages of it where it's a lot more like a breakup, like we we're talking about, like, uh, this set of ideas hurt me so badly. I'm moving to a different city and I hate those ideas now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... Over time, I think I've I've been managing to integrate. I'm getting to. I think now I'm getting to the point where I'm more able to integrate without getting too attached to any particular stage. But I mean, I'm, I'm attached to the stage I'm in. I just can't quite identify it yet. Yeah, like you you don't know exactly what it is you're in until you're out of it and you can look back on it. Yeah, exactly. It's like a what is water kind of thing. Like because you're in it, you can't see it as a fish. That kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the joke was one fish. The one fish is like, "Is the water warm today?" And the other fish is like, "What is water?" Ah, uh-huh. it's it's like this. There's a speech by David Foster Wallace that's uh, it's really good. You'd you'd like it. Okay, cool. So what what happened next? Well, I was like in this Jordan Peterson world, and it's partially it's like it's like a, a world of good and evil. Part of the whole thing is like when you believe that like the universe has like some kind of like teleology, like purpose or meaning or hierarchy of values, almost like an equation. Like you can like solve everything down to like the situation you're in. And like there is like a good and an evil in that situation. And the idea is like you can somehow intuit it or figure it out. But whether you can or not, it's there. There is that good or evil. And it, it puts a lot of pressure. And I think that that pressure is hard for me to bear. Like I said before, like I was always competent but it was hard for me to like find that creativity when I was like kind of constantly judging myself in that way. Like the Jordan Peterson philosophy, the way he frames it or tends to frame it these days, it might be more biased towards the the divine masculine. Like he addresses both in his book, but I think to like, you know, if we're going by that framework, which may or may not be sexist, like to really access like the divine feminine or like right brain kind of 
way of being, I think you, you do have to sort of let go. And so it was hard to be creative. Like I could get all my work done, but I like I could get my to do to do list done. But it would be like it'd be something like I don't know, almost crushing me, like you know, like a fear of failure and like self judgment and this like intense imperative that like there was things I must do. It was just became hard to like kind of breathe. Okay, and it's because of the the pressure of this philosophy. I think all of it, well, it's, it's all it all comes together, right? We choose the philosophies that fit into the shape of our psyches. Okay. Okay. So it's not like it, it was. It's partly your nature, and it's it's partly the fact that you've you've put that philosophy on top of it, and it all comes together, and and you apply pressure on yourself because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It almost makes me think that, like, man, there's like a risk of like feedback loops, like especially in this world where like we're all able to just kind of choose our own philosophies, as opposed to the past where like mm-hmm. you had like kind of a default philosophy of your like tribe or community. It seems like we can just like pick a philosophy that like suits our our tendencies or even our pathologies and like just end up in these like feedback loops of like becoming more and more ourselves and Yes. Well, it's definitely some <laughs> doubt that I have like every time I make a decision, I I'm wondering like am I making this decision just because I feel this way? And if if I'm feeling this way, is it actually intuition that's guiding me or is it just like I, ha- I have this whim and I'm trying to justify it with all this, you know, high- highfalutin philosophy or something like that? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a worry. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's hard to, to pull those pieces apart. Yes. <laughs> so I guess I overcame the challenge of uh, my politics by turning to philosophy and I overcame the challenges of this kind of restrictive philosophy. Well, I start. I sort of became a nihilist for a while. I think like I had to go in the opposite direction for a bit. And that was when we had the conversation where I alluded to like REL three, because I was I was making that painting at the time that was goodbye to REL three, because I was like had this idea that like I was becoming REL four. And I sort of for a while like gave up the idea that like anything had any meaning, and it was all just like. Like meaning was whatever I made it to be, like that kind of idea. There was no ultimate meaning to the universe. But I had a really hard time staying in that place. I, honestly, I found it kind of boring. Mm. Maybe I need to stay there longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess uh, all of us need a little bit of that sometimes. That's I, I think people call that, what do they call it? The dark night of the soul? I Like where, where you it dawns on you that everything is inherently meaningless and then you have to figure out what might have a meaning for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was still doing the same kind of things, but I was doing them differently. And I just like had, I just felt so sad about it. I really wanted the universe to have a meaning. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of my problem is, uh, I'm, I, I can motivate myself by obligation, but I have a hard time motivating myself by, uh, by my own desires here's a here's a question for you if you have this one stage where it's like everything is inherently meaningful and it's it's like if you if you're wise enough you can determine the the meaning of of the universe in the moment and that that produces that can produce a lot of pressure Uh, on the other side you have this nihilistic like everything is inherently meaningless and that produces despair so what would be like the other way, another way of looking at it that would actually produce delight or something like that. 
That's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. You might have stumped me. Okay, good. <laughs> I guess that means it, re- it, it really is a good question if it stumps you a little bit. <laughs> Nietzsche would say, like, basically we need to become, like, ubermensches and like, create our own meaning in the universe. And he did that and, like, he didn't. he wasn't very happy, but he... Nietzsche would go up to the top of, like, the Swiss Alps and, like, write his books. It was, like, something so epic about it, like, the way he did it. He was, he was trying to, like, think in ways that no one had ever thought before and, like, write things that, like, no one had ever write, written before. And his whole thing is, like, you develop a moral system for yourself. And that's why, like, he's, like, the moral system, like, you can't cling to the moral systems of the past. That's the idea, is that they're invalidated or, like, we've, we've, we've taken away their legitimacy. It's, like, God is dead. And so we must become gods ourselves. Like create all the meaning ourselves. That's that's the Nietzschean that's the Nietzschean solution. Okay, but you said he wasn't ultimately happy. So so maybe he was onto something, but missed a, a key point. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's proceed. That's a good question because Nietzsche was not happy. Yeah. Let's look at some other options. I don't know. What I mean, like you could do like, like there's like the Jungian approach, which is where like you try to like. It's basically like it become like similar to the Jordan Peterson one, where you like try to find like the divine masculine and divine feminine, and maybe if you can like have a different kind of relationship to the divine feminine, it's you know like the pagan worship. Maybe life is about trying to perceive these these cosmic forces and develop a relationship with them. Yeah, and there's some that are more like oriented towards like you know nature and joy and creativity, like the Great Mother and the trickster archetype. So maybe it's just about not becoming over-identified with the cosmic masculine. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess if you were looking at Nietzsche, you'd probably say that he was over overly identified with the with the masculine. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, but he would he would have um he was I guess you could say he was trying to become like a like a Judeo-Christian god figure himself. <laughs> okay. That was his whole thing, right? I don't know. To to me that definitely sounds like a path of folly. It's like or you probably never quite reached that. <laughs> uh, generally, I like to set goals that are that I think I can achieve. Taoism, maybe Taoism is like because the Tao's got like the two aspects, right? Okay, but it it kind of emphasizes the more like flowy aspect of the Tao. Hmm. So maybe maybe that's that's an option. Yeah. Well, I read the the Tao Te Ching many years ago, but I'm still not really sure if I understand Taoism at all. Uh, I read the um, what is it? Thoughts on the River Huahua by the the Chuang Tzu. It's a, they're very interesting, but I don't know. What, <laughs> I still don't really know what they're about. Yeah, I, I don't understand the Book of Tao either. Was that the other one that you're supposed to read? There's, I know, there's like two two main writers in Taoism that you're supposed to read. Like one is Lao Tzu, and the other one I forget. Chuang Tzu. Yeah, I, I, I guess Chuang Tzu is probably the, the second most prominent author in, in Taoism. So he's uh, everybody kind of knows this story where uh, Chuang is sleeping and he's dreaming his butterfly and he has no idea that he's, he's Chuang Tzu. And then he wakes up and he's, he looks around and says, oh, hang on, I am a human being. So how do I know that I, I was once a butterfly? Uh, how do I know that I was once a man dreaming of, of, I was a butterfly? And now I'm not a butterfly dreaming that I am a man. 
which is like, yeah, this is this this question about the nature of reality. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how practical that is in trying to apply that to your life, like as a as a way of living, or is it just something that breaks your brain a little bit so you have some pause, like a Zen koan? I'm wondering if it's maybe relevant to this idea of uh, happiness. Like maybe part of our unhappiness is that we've become so identified with being the man dreaming of a butterfly and not ah. willing to entertain the possibility. Yeah, that we're a butterfly dreaming we're a man. Yeah, that's a good point. Then- I guess if a lot of the time our identities can inhibit us from perceiving things accurately and, and from being happy. So I'm reading... Uh, Carl Rogers book it's called on becoming a person and then that, that's a, a key theme that comes up so it, it's kind of a funny uh, title for a book but it, he keeps saying this stuff again and again about how his clients would become what they are and it basically he means that they let go of some preconceived notion that they have about themselves like say gives this example like a a young man thinks to himself I can handle my liquor and because he has that concept he will just ignore all the evidence to the contrary so it's all this this uh cognitive bias uh like ignoring the the evidence that you think is irrelevant and that prevents you from transforming as a person and it also prevents you from just enjoying what you are in the moment yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. It makes me think like we have all these assumptions about who we are, like, even stuff like, like, you know, the one that's often mentioned, like in this society, like you are what you do, mm-hmm. I guess in all like kind of British descended societies, that's a big one. You are what you do. You are what you have. And even like at a more subtle level, like with the dream, it makes me think like, I definitely identify more with like my waking life. Like I am the self that's awake. It's having this like continuity based organized experience not the part of me that dreams i wonder about that too because sometimes i I talk to people about dreams and and maybe they're interested or maybe they're just saying well i don't see what that has to do with my life (laughs) and it's kind of funny because we spend so much of our life dreaming but we can somehow just shut that off and and say it's it's somehow not important because it's not practical yeah I feel like this is getting into like a Buddhist mentality now, like this idea of like dis- disidentify or it's ch- well, <laughs> it could be Buddhist or it could be like stoic. Like, like the difference for me is like with the Buddhist mentality, like you sort of like peel away all the layers of who you think you are until you realize that you're nothing. Whereas in the stoic mentality, it's more like mm-hmm. you challenge every layer of who you think you are. And then it doesn't really say what happens. It's not really like a philosophy, like something happens after. It's just like, it's a good, useful thing to do. It'll help you. Hmm. Okay. So it's it's a process. But what, what do you gain from constantly doing that process? It's practical, practical gains. It's just like, you know, the limits of your own knowledge. Uh, yeah, I guess practical gains. Like I think with stoicism, if when you practice stoicism, you, you get to a place of like... Uh, you know, having more emotional regulation and being able to handle things better and being a better leader and being more able to, isn't more being more willing to able to accept death and mm-hmm. the difficult parts of life. So wait, so the the stage four that you were going into was like nihilism, or is is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was supposed to be like an optimistic nihilism. I guess kind of like Nietzsche. <laughs> 
Okay, so this came about after you took the the landmark course? Yeah, I took the landmark course, and they had, like, I mean, it sounds a little silly because it's, like, you know, landmark, but, yeah, they they, they had a pretty, I don't know, it's a whole thing. It was, like, you're sleep-deprived, and they're, like, putting you through all this, like, all these exercises, and you're, like, calling people from your life to, like, Landmark is like this, like basically like three day personal development course. And, and it's, it's just, it's really intense. And, mm-hmm. and they sort of like end it with like this sort of sudden argument for nihilism. Yeah. And like, I got up on stage and started like arguing and then it's like, you know, it's, you're in this like self-development, I was in this self-development mindset. So it was like, she was, the, the leader of it was like challenging me. Like, this is like part of your whole same comp. This is like, this is the same complex. Like this is your whole set of issues just coming up. And I was like not wanting to accept that narrative of it. But when I thought about it, I saw there was some truth to it. Mm -hmm. And so I tried accepting it Mm -hmm. and like seeing what happened when I like fully accepted the nihilism. What, uh, what emotions did you feel as a result of that? I felt very free, but I also felt, uh, like a, like loss, great loss. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, now you don't know what to believe in, or you, you feel like, or you, you think, you don't even have to believe in anything. Yeah. And it's funny because I still kept doing a lot of the same things. Whereas with the political one, I changed everything I was doing after that one. With this one, I just kept doing the same things. It was like I could just come up with a different set of justifications for doing the same things. And it makes me think of what, what they say in Zen Buddhism. that they're, they're like, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. So it's like you you realize something about yourself or about the world, but nothing needs to change in terms of your outward actions. But I don't know in in this case if, if it was actually a if if it was a valuable uh, realization or what was valuable about it. I guess is my question. I'm not totally sure. I think it helped me like disengage from some of the like intense beliefs I was holding before. I think it helped me become more detached, I guess. Mm-hmm. A bit like the uh, like we're talking about with stoicism. It helped me get more become more stoic. So you didn't need to let things in your life affect you so much. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I was able to hold my beliefs at least with a bit more distance. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Like this question of how does one become happy? Yeah. That, that's that's like a challenge for sure. It's not like I, I feel for me, I've never really prior, prioritized it. Uh, and is happiness uh, or, yeah, is happiness something important to you? I think I'm starting to realize how important it is. But it's still hard for me to treat it as an ends. I still kind of see it as a means. Hmm. Like I have all these things I want to do and there's all these things that are mean, like I want to have a meaningful life and to have a meaningful life. I need to do all these things and to do all these things, it'll help if I'm happy. Yeah. I hear a lot of people say that it's like they say happiness is a vehicle. Happiness is a means of travel. It's not a destination. I do have some questions about that. Like happiness to, to me, it does seem like a worthy goal of itself. It seems to be valuable of itself. And uh, and it also mm-hmm. it it is practical in that sense as a as a means of transportation. Well, why why do you value happiness? Just because it feels good. Uh, I I don't think uh, there's much more to it. And it's it's like something that there's there's no victim. And, you know, if you're happy in the right way, you don't need to feel better or worse than anybody else. It's 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 pure. I would say. And you can just enjoy it. How would you characterize the feeling of happiness? 
it's it can be visceral like it's some, something you feel in in your belly and uh sort of rising feeling it can be with excitement but it doesn't have to be it can be more like contentment because there are all i mean happiness it can be a, a broad term it's difficult to break it down according to each one i mean there's there's several different feelings this kind of like contentment like this calm happiness and then there's there's joy which is more it'll elicit a beaming smile and then there's uh, elation which is maybe associated with uh, a, a revelation like you suddenly realize something cool about the world so there's all, all these these broad range of uh, positive emotions that can fall into happiness oh there's there's like a lot there for sure I, I, okay, so I, I saw this quote once that was something like, um, happiness only occurs in the moment, whereas meaning mm-hmm. must bridge the past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard that perspective too. And and it, it kind of makes sense. I, I think that's valid. Yeah, it's, it's tough though. I mean, I, I realize like, I mean, I'm, I'm leaving this place I'm living in in, in a few days and I, it's sort of, I have so much trouble just like being in the moment with where I am and like just appreciating it. Like, I always have to be judging, like, am I excited? Like, I always have to be judging my orientation towards whatever is coming next. Like, am I excited? Am I apprehensive? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Is this a good situation? Is it bad? Like, I'm always, I'm constantly judging. And it's really hard for me to be in the present, just experience the moments I'm in. Yeah. Well, how about this? Like, what, what would be, if you're asking these questions, like, how do I feel about this future event? Is there a question that you could ask instead, which would be cooler? Hmm. That's another good question. <laughs> I guess I could ask, how, how do I feel about this present event? Yeah, just, just uh, feel whatever you're feeling. Yeah, there's like sort of the, the different approaches, right? There's like the approach of just feel whatever you're feeling. And there's the approach of like, try to come to some kind of more positive emotion, like gratitude. You talk about that in your podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if that question about how you're orientated to future events, I wonder what that has to do with identity. Is there some aspect of your identity that would make you want to ask that kind of question? Probably. I mean, gosh, I guess I have a feeling sometimes like I need to be in the right place for the right things to happen. And so I'm always trying to figure out where to go. Hmm. And part of that is like judging and trying to find patterns. Okay. It does. Uh, it sounds like similar to with the the universal purpose idea. It sounds like it might put a lot of pressure on you. Like, what happens if you're not in the right place at the right time? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's sort of the question, right? Because if everything matters, then everything has to go right, and then that's like so much pressure. Perfectionism. <laughs> Auto exigent. Exigente. <laughs> yeah. Oh, writing that word down again. It- <laughs> I think it's important probably to believe that the universe has both order and chaos, like back to that old framework that like in some way, like everything matters and in some way being in the right place at the right time is important, but in another way it doesn't matter. And in another way there's like so much chaos everywhere in the universe that paradoxically it's okay wherever you are. And maybe that's like what happiness is like finding that okayness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know some people have the, this idea about life, like maybe maybe there are certain things that have to happen, 
and they're always going to happen no matter what. But maybe in your day-to-day life, there there's a lot of freedom where, you know, it's it's just you making the best of whatever situation is there. I don't know if that's true, but it's an idea. It's interesting. I think in daily life, like you can still, you can still kind of play it both ways. Even doing like the exact same task, you can play it both ways. I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'm like, just like, it's like if I'm like writing something, like trying to be like do creative writing, I could like be like, my purpose on this earth is to like write a great novel. And so it must be amazing. Or I can like be like just playing around like <laughs> and having fun and like not caring if anyone's going to see it and not caring what's going to happen with it. Probably I write better the second way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is it less pressure? Like, yeah, you can just have a, have a good time and see what comes out. And uh, maybe something good will come out. Yeah, I guess you do need both. Because maybe you do need to separate them. Because at a certain point, you do need to be like, okay, I've been playing around in my journal for the last like month. And there's some good stuff here. And I need to like put it all together into something. Yeah, okay. Or like a, a book of essays or something. Yeah, something, right? Like eventually, you need to package it into something that the world's going to see. Like something you can share with people. So it's like, I guess in your journal, you have this low stakes mentality. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can write whatever in my journal. And that, that uh, leads to those kind of results. Yeah, well, it's hard to know how far to go with each of them. Because I sometimes feel like there's certain things, yeah. Because, I mean, there's constraints, right? Like, creativity also does well when it has constraints. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you're recording these podcasts every day. I'm sure a lot of it's, like, very, like, improvised and spontaneous. But you're also, on some level, thinking about, like, you know, this is going to become, like, this five to ten minute package that's going to go on the site. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I was having a, a discussion with, with this with my friend. and He was giving me some ideas. So, like, maybe you could do it like this. Like, he was suggesting that I t- take quotes from great great people which is a it's a pretty good idea but i feel like i i have i know i know it's going to be probably between five and ten minutes long and i just have an idea and i'll I'll start recording and be spontaneous with it so i do have that constraint but i also have a lot of freedom within those 10 minutes yeah yeah that makes sense yeah (laughs) Yeah, it seems to be working for me so far. We'll see. <laughs> I guess we're coming into we're like zeroing in on some kind of like balanced perspective. You need both meaning and happiness, order and chaos. Yes, that sounds it sounds like that's the lesson we discovered here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe we could say like yeah, allow allow yourself. Well, allow yourself to play, I suppose, and. Also, challenge yourself, or is is there something else you'd like to add to that? It's interesting because there's like the question of whether you're whether you do both at the same time or whether you like separate them. There's some like is there like sometimes when you're playing and like sometimes when you're all business, or are you kind of like doing both at the same time in some almost like with the podcast a bit where you have like the constraint, but you're also mm. improvising. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess that's a tricky balance to find. But I'd say, yeah, you can have times when you're just absolutely messing around and you have no constraints, whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, other times where you're you're playing around with your set bounds and other times may, where maybe you're trying to get a, a specific result. 
Yeah, totally. Oh man. Again, again, that's sort of like, that's sort of like the lesson I keep coming up with, like everywhere in life. It seems like, you know, like Verbeke talks about this, like there's these like, like opponent processes or there's like these polarities everywhere in reality. And it seems like the trick is like, it's like with, like with Aristotle, like the golden mean, like there's like, he would say that like virtue isn't finding the right side of the polarity to be on. It's finding some sort of balance. Mm-hmm. And like Verbeke interprets that like John Verbeke, he's this, anyway, you can I'm sure link to his series. It's, it's yeah. really cool, but he talks about how the interviews that you guys did. With- yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. And this is from his, his meaning crisis series. That he talks about Aristotle. So it's like, so like you've got like a polarity like this one, like between like, do I try like, do I focus on happiness and try to just experience the moment or do I focus on meaning and try to like build things that span across time? The trick isn't mm-hmm. to like find the perfect middle point or to like realize which polarity is the right polarity. Like, oh, happiness is the right one. Meaning is wrong or meaning is right. Like screw happiness. It's to mm-hmm. be able to like dynamically move between the different extremes and to be and to have the mm-hmm. basically like to, to become like a big enough person where you're able to exist at like every point on the spectrum. Oh, okay. Bigness. <laughs> <laughs> it's an uh, interesting quality. What, what does it mean to be a big person or a bit being big in, in that context? Well, it's like what we're talking about before, right? Like I was talking about like how I have this tendency to like kind of experience reality as, as, as war or conflict. And I see the, the conflict. I, I, I both am drawn to the conflict everywhere and I draw it into myself. And so that's like one way of being. And it's a valuable way of being. Like it, some people are conflict avoidant mm-hmm. and that's no good either. Mm-hmm. But if it's the, if it's my only way of being, then there's like a smallness to that. Whereas if it's one tool I have among many, which is what I'm going for, mm-hmm. then I'm a bigger person because I, I have more ways of being in the world. Right. I know one aspect of that in cognitive behavioral therapy they call that cognitive flexibility, mm. being able to see things from different perspectives. Yeah, totally. I would say it's it's cognitive flexibility, emotional flexibility, almost like um, existential flexibility. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've uh, I think we've explored this quite well, actually. I think I think we've talked about some of the challenges that you had and some of the different positions you've had, and how how you moved into a next step and and eventually how you integrated some of those lessons is is there anything else you want to add or maybe you want to give a plug uh i agree i think we covered things thoroughly i mean i really enjoyed this i got a lot of insight from this conversation so thank you so much for having me on kurt uh maybe we'll, we'll put my website in the description if people want to learn more about who i am or or send me a message keep up with my with my stuff yeah. I'm doing a lot of writing right now, so Yeah. It's gonna be there. Okay, cool. Are you publishing? Yeah, I I will be. I I am and will be. There's there's like a lot of stuff I already have published, but it, like the stuff I'm more excited about is the stuff that isn't published yet. But there's like a page on my website where I put my writing and Okay. On your personal website, not on the multiversity project. Yeah, on my personal website. Yeah, the multiversity is also a podcast I do with Chris and Katie who have been on here. Uh yeah, and I might be creating a medium account, which might be out by the time this comes out. So if it is, okay. that'll be right. it'll be down there too. <laughs> I think that's all the plugs I have. Cool. What's your website? 
arielfriedman.com. Okay, cool. And then there's multiversityproject.co. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks so much, Ariel. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. A beautiful thought. Thanks for coming along for the ride, for the journey through chaos and order to explore that with Ariel and myself. Now, of course, if you're interested in Ariel's work, you can check out multiversityproject.co and also Ariel's website, arielfriedman.com. I'll put the link in the description or on the website so you can check that out if you're curious about her writings. Now, as I mentioned at the top, if this was beneficial to you or if you thought of somebody who this might be beneficial for, then please don't hesitate to send them a little message just giving them the link and giving them an idea of why they should listen to this podcast. Thanks for that. Now, as you probably noticed, and as Ariel definitely noticed, during our conversation, she managed to get some insight because I asked her certain key questions. And that's not on accident. That's happened because I practice cognitive behavioral techniques. So if you're interested in getting some insight in your life, seeing things from a different perspective and learning how to take action in a different part of your life or in a new endeavor, bringing more hope and fulfillment into your everyday experience, then please go on to beautifulpodcast.com. You see at the top has that link for the CBT sessions and you can book a session with me. All right. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day and release an amazing burst of joy into the universe. Adios. Oh,